fortunate to have the opportunity today to have Mr. Andrew Abercrombie, Chair and Founding Director of Hum Group on our program. Andrew, you've had a, a remarkable career. You're a businessman, you're an investor, you're a philanthropist. We'll go through all of those shortly, but I thought we'd start with your background. If we could give us some colour around your upbringing initially in Sydney and then you move to Melbourne, I think around, uh, around age five or so. Look, I don't remember that much about Sydney. It wasn't a, sort of a formative period of my life, but um, I think the most significant good fortune I had, I suppose, was a very loving family. It was quite austere, like none of the luxuries of today. You know, one car, one house, that was it. Um, and Dad had an incredible work ethic, and so did Mum, actually. And so all the other kids got pocket money, but I had to mow the lawn, wash the cars, rake the drive, you know, it was just, just a given. And um, I think all, like everybody, I like the idea of having some money, not for the sake of it, but simply gives you choice. And that's probably always been what's motivated me, um, plus the satisfaction of achievement. But I think um, probably the key elements for the purposes of this discussion would be a loving family who sacrificed some things to give me a good education. Went to state school to begin with, which was fantastic. Hanging out with the baker's kids and the rubbish man's kids, you know, we're all friends. And, um, but, you know, going to Scotch was a great privilege for um, secondary school. And also, I think that school instills, a lot of the private schools do instill uh, a work ethic. It, it, it can be counterproductive for some, but it worked for me. And that desire to want to make money showcased itself in, you had about five or six paper rounds, I think, mm. as a kid, and then you found an arbitrage in initially selling motorbikes, cars, and then houses. Tell us about your, your initial entrepreneurial flair in those early days. Life's about opportunity, but more, more importantly, recognising the opportunities. And uh, I, I guess with the motors, uh, sure, when I was a kid, yeah, I did have heaps of paper rounds, and I always had jobs during the university vacations. and. Um, but then I discovered, I bought my first motorcycle and I detailed it and I just had a natural, uh, I don't know why to use the word flair, but I enjoyed working on machines and I sold that bike, you know, I bought it for 250, sold it for 350 and back then, you know, in the early, early to mid 70s, a hundred bucks was meaningful and um, I thought, well gee, that went well, you know, I'll get another one and, and so on and so on and it just sort of built up and then I moved away from bikes into motor cars and I discovered by chance, I suppose, because I spent a lot of time in Sydney because my mother's family was still very much alive back then, and just discovered that a particular brand of car that I particularly liked, for some un to this day unknown reason, was like 20% cheaper in Sydney, you know? So I traded them frequently. Yeah, so it's, it's recognising opportunity, and I, I think that's probably been a theme of my life. But the more educated, that you know, knowledge is empowerment, and it's one of the reasons that I have done quite a bit of formal education and for me it's it's been the greatest return on investment of just about anything else I've done. I read that during your formative years, particularly in secondary school, you had a, a desire to want to go into the field of medicine. Why Why was that? Uh, I liked the idea of, of understanding more about this thing we call the human body. Uh, I liked the idea of helping people um, and, and not to be underestimated at the time, you know, doctors were sort of relatively highly paid and highly respected and that, that appealed as well. So there was an element of security as well. Um, so yeah, all, all of those reasons. And then it came La Trobe University. Well, what happened was that I was very young when I was at school. I, when I started year 12, I was 15. 
and I struggled a bit with sort of physics, chem, mathematics, all the rest of it. So I didn't do well enough to get into medicine. But because I was so young, I thought, well, I'll have another go at it. So I actually, in my second year, 12, I did get enough marks to get into Monash by one mark. However, back in those days, if you repeated final year, you got a 10% penalty. And I begged and pleaded and wrote letters and had meetings and interviews, but they wouldn't, wouldn't um, uh, use their discretion to uh, uh, ignore the 10% penalty. So I didn't make it, but it was one of several sliding doors moments in my life, as it turned out. And then what came next? I know there was a stint at Monash that was the law part, but Latrobe Economics was the first part in yeah. about 76. I had no hesitation. I said, right, I'm not going to be a doctor. Um, I want to focus on commerce. I like the idea. I want to educate myself. So studying economics as distinct from an airy fairy arts degree was a simple choice. I was always fascinated by law, and I did a bunch of legal studies subjects in my echo degree, and that uh, enabled me to go straight across to Monash when I graduated. And life at Monash, you were in the same class and in obviously the same period at Monash as, as people like Peter Costello and, and Michael Kroger. What was life on campus like? Well, Kroger wasn't there. He was at Melbourne, I think. But certainly I remember Peter wandering around the place with long hair and a fairly shabby goatee with a megaphone surgically attached to his lips, you know, and uh, espousing the virtues of student unionship. And uh, I couldn't give a toss. I thought, don't these guys have anything better to do with their life? Because the same year I, went, I started at Monash, I bought my first house. And I, I hesitate to say this in front of young people because it seems so unfair. A little double-fronted three-bedroom weatherboard cottage in, in Richmond for 16,000 bucks. And uh, I just worked 7.24, you know, a typical day up at seven o'clock, start restuffing the house, jump on a motorcycle, get to university, go to a few lectures and tutes, come back, do some more digging, go back to uni, go back, you know, buy meat pie for dinner and do a bit more restumping and next day repeat. And they were halcyon days, you know, and uh, I mean, I don't mean to sound like yeah, I was a you know, pitiful slave. I enjoyed every minute of it. Hard work, but the thing about, beautiful thing about youth is you don't know how difficult things are going to be because if you did, you'd never undertake them. So the house that I was going to renovate in three, three weeks took me three years, but that's okay. So economics at La Trobe, law at, at Monash, late 70s, what was, where, where did you see your career taking off? Was there any particular field that interested you most? Absolutely. Uh, I was utterly focused throughout all my university education on what I call subjects that matter. Uh, I was not interested in crime or family law or torts or whatever. I just completely focused on what I regarded as, as the core of commercial knowledge. Companies, trusts, taxation... Macroeconomics was important, uh, you know, to have that overall view. But basically, that was my plan. I said, I figured that to have any chance of success in a commercial world, knowledge was power. And then in 1982, as I understand it, post-university, you and a number of fellow graduates established your own legal firm. What, what happened next? Well, I had uh, an amazing uh, opportunity when I did my articles and again sliding doors moment you know I would love to have gone to Mallison's or Freehills or whatever but I, I ended up with this swashbuckling entrepreneur called Garrett Gray amazing bloke I learnt more in two years than most people learn in ten you know and it was actually a couple of lawyers considerably older than me who had already established this firm in 1981 invited me to join them in 82 so I did 
and the specialty, I think it initially was tax and then you moved into entertainment law? Well, it might, they're actually connected here's why. Tax uh, planning became more and more difficult as the government would legislate to uh, diminish the impact of a lot of high court cases because the, the high watermark of tax avoidance occurred under uh, the Chief Justiceship of uh, Sir Garfield Barwick in the High Court. And he typically would read down any ambiguity in tax law in favour of the taxpayer. So there were some outrageous opportunities. Anyway, John Howard put a stop to it all with a brand new provision in the, in the Tax Act called Part 4A, which was, uh, became law on May the 16th, 1981. Some things are entrenched in one's mind, which changed the whole ballpark. At the same time, his boss, who was at the time Malcolm Fraser, had introduced another part of the Tax Act called Part uh, 10BA, which basically was designed to create huge incentive for Australians to invest in Australian films and productions. And the tax breaks from this, without getting into too much detail, were insane. So it was a natural step for us because traditional tax planning, you know, trust strips and slutskins and all sorts of tricky things, had become a lot more difficult because of Part 4A. So this was just an open door that we all barged through. And one of my partners was colleagues with a guy in Sydney who had a production company, sort of a management and production company. So we bought 50% of his business. And with his production skills and our ability to raise money in a tax effective way, we had a great partnership. So we did a lot of very, instead of focusing on feature films, we realised that documentaries and, and television productions were easier to make, cheaper to make and quicker to turn over with quicker revenue. And probably our, uh, the peak of our success was a, a long-running uh, science-orientated program called Beyond 2000, which still sells to this day. And we did hun literally hundreds of productions. and uh, So that was how we got into film. So it was really a tax-driven thing. And then this guy, whose business we owned half of, also managed a whole lot of bands. So because I was the only partner that was unmarried and uh, without obligations, I went up to Sydney to start our Sydney office and work with this guy, which is why I ended up acting for all the bands. In Sydney in the 80s? Tell us about that. Oh, wow. It was wild. Being, being a, uh, a young heterosexual male in Sydney in the early 80s was a lot of fun. And you mentioned some. You, you mentioned that you were looking after bands, as I understand it, Cold Chisel, In Excess, and, and others. What was that experience like when you're working closely with with groups like that at the peak of their power? Yeah, look, it was great fun. Um, <clears throat> some of them, like I wouldn't have even met half the band members. You know, you're doing the legal work. You don't necessarily have to meet the individuals. They tend to be insulated by their managers. Um, but probably the band I got closest to was the Eurogliders, Grace Knight and she's still quite well known. And we were very close buddies and some of the band, we shared a house together and I'd sit with them when they were writing music and we, you know, I, I love music, I used to play the piano. And, and it was really good fun. And you sort of live the celebrity life and you know, feel pretty pleased with yourself. But um, it, it's all fantasy land really. And, it, and typically it doesn't last long. I read that um, during this period you've spoken about you managed to find out how to really structure deals and that you know that played a big part later in your career. Talk us through the, the fundamentals of successful no negotiation in terms of some of those skills that you learned back then that you're able to carry forward. Well I guess I have a view on negotiation which is that it's fairly intuitive. You know there's plenty of, of programs that are 
is sold is we will teach you how to negotiate. And I, my, it's just an opinion that some people just have a natural skill, natural insight. It's all about EQ, really, because you, to, to negotiate well, you have to have a really good insight into how the person on the other side of the table is thinking and feeling. So the more you know about the position of the person with whom you're negotiating, the more empowering it is. Um, I wouldn't claim to be the best negotiator in the world by a million miles, but you, you do learn a lot from experience. And uh, so I would say experientially, I'm probably better than average. But I just love doing deals. And when I started practicing law, <clears throat> I was um, puzzled by what it seemed to me to be very weak positions taken by a lot of the lawyers that I was on the other side of the table from. And I realised, it was one of the first chinks in my belief in the legal system, is that these guys didn't really care. Well, they just wanted to get their fee from their client and I'd go in really hard and they'd go, oh, okay. <laughs> it's a bit disappointing. Um, you know, it might sound a little bit cynical, but unfortunately, uh, it's, it's a reality. So I did enjoy that because I would usually, one should never use the word win and lose, but prevailed. And by 1988, you'd done the, the law thing for five or six years and you applied to study in an MBA, for an MBA in Switzerland. What, what, why did you have itchy feet? Why did you feel like you'd done the law thing and, and you wanted to do something next? Well, Rob, in my heart of hearts, I was pretty certain that I wasn't going to be a lawyer for my life. But I equally was certain that to get, say, eight years or so of intense commercial practice in areas that mattered, as I mentioned, tax, companies, trusts, so on, was really important. And so I was approaching 30 years of age and I'm thinking, crikey, I'm getting old, you know. I don't think I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. So it was really pretty much along those lines. Having said that, I knew in my heart of hearts I was probably going to do it eventually and, and rising 30 was the trigger point. So I realised also that I'd done some great deals for my clients as a lawyer, but that the amount of money perhaps my skills were making for them was great, but I, I couldn't get rewarded. There was this dreadful thing called the solicitor's remuneration order that prohibited uh, contingency fees and prohibited percentage fees. It was just ridiculous. And then you wonder why so many lawyers are so average. That's why. I mean, it's changed a bit now. Um, so I thought, well, I like doing this and I'm quite good at it. I, I want to go to the big smoke, you know, make some money for myself. So that was, these are all different but contributory thoughts to what made, why I made the move. Tell us about the, the experience at IWD Business School in, in Switzerland. You studied there for I think a year or so and then you spent some time travelling. What, what was that like? You obviously built a, a cohort of, of people that you're still friends with today. Tell us about the experience of, of actually studying over there and, and learning in a different country. Well, I'd probably start by saying it was the best year of my life. Um, in terms of the incredibly intense um, amazing people, 65 people from 31 different nationalities with about 40 different background professions. Uh, and by definition, you have a lot in common, otherwise you wouldn't be there because it's so hard to get there, you know. And I looked at, I was fortunate to get in, but um, it's really Harvard's European sister school. So the two schools swap faculty and case studies and have identical teaching methods. But whereas Harvard's sort of 800 people in in year one and 400 in year two. So if you get a highly intelligent uh, cohort, bad luck. 
A um, lot of exams, uh, whereas IMIDA is more class participation, 80% American, 80% males, totally different from the cohort that I was with. And, um, you know, whereas Harvard was, uh, I, back then, going, God, old memories, uh, 1,100 contact hours in two years, IMIDA was 900 hours in one year. So really intense. And because you're dealing with such uh, a variety of cultures and languages and people, it was that in, in itself was a daily lesson on how to get on with people that you're not necessarily culturally aligned with. Post-MBA, you then look to apply for finance roles in M&A in either the US or the UK. You applied, if I recall correctly, 15 interviews in London and about the same in New York before landing a role with Credit Suisse First Boston. Tell us a, about that. Why finance and, and why did you want to work in one of those markets? Well, if I can circle back to the question, you know, why I quit law, I wanted to put myself into a situation that I liked, I understood, I thought I could do well at and I could make myself some money. And that was why I was driven. I, I had a close, I probably could have got a job with McKinsey. I had quite a few um, interviews with them. But I thought at the end of the day, I'm 31 now, and I know how these consultants work, that basically your first year or two, you're sitting there counting bottle tops, you know, to figure out how the pub's making money or not. And um, so I was very focused on mergers and acquisitions. And that was what I ended up getting, this job with, with CSFB which I was ecstatic about. It was, a, it was a long and winding road. And I had a, a guy who's a friend to this day who was uh, sort of my mentor, a guy called Pete Thomas, who's, he'd be probably 12, 15 years older than me. But he was at the peak of his profession back then. And um, yeah, it was, um, I got the job and I'd literally been to New York to meet everybody and set up accommodation, all the rest of it. And then my start date kept getting postponed. And to cut a long story short, um, you're probably not old enough to remember, Rob, but uh, in 1989, the wheels fell off the economy big time. And I basically got a call from my American boss-to-be, who was a bit of a smart ass, and said, well, Drew, you know what FIFO is? You know, first in, last out, or whatever. No, last in, first out, LIFO. I'm going, where's he going? He said, well, we've just laid off 1,200 people from the New York office, and you're one of them, you know? <laughs> oh, thanks for that. So it was, I was devastated at the time, but there's another sliding doors moment in life, you know? How do you how did you move on from something like that? You think you're going to be living and working in New York in finance, yeah. dream job sort of thing. Yeah. Then you're yeah. having to relocate essentially back to Melbourne. But how do you get past that? Yeah, look, it was pretty devastating for sure. And um, I scoured the world and uh, looked for other opportunities and had a bit of frustration. You know, I got a job offer from Citibank in the UK, but I had to figure out how to get my own work permit and um, General Motors in. Uh, offered me a job in the UK also. But I thought it, it, because I'd achieved what was the pinnacle of my aspirations, everything else seemed second rate. And that very glum period, 89, 90, um, I suppose forced me to come to terms with what I really aspired to do. And I thought, well, I don't think, I've lost the opportunity to be an employee. I've got to do something on my own. I start a business, I buy a business, but there was a hitch I didn't have any money to speak of because I'd spent it all educating myself. So it was a difficult couple of years and I was working with my former partners on a consulting basis. So I was you know, making enough to avoid getting hungry and uh, I was in Sydney doing this work, legal uh, tax consulting. And uh, I stumbled across this opportunity and um, one thing led to another. And I saw the opportunity because 
because of my legal background, um, I, I could see that there'd been some bad behaviour, <laughs> for, for want of a better description. Um, I analysed the documentation with the Westpac Bank and it was deeply flawed. Um, so I was looking for opportunities that I could exploit with my knowledge and with my time, because that was the only currency I had at the time. So that's in a nutshell. And then I discovered that opportunity in late 90, and then spent most of 91 putting, joining the dots, putting the whole thing together. And that was the vendor financing company? Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, initially known as Berkman Capital. Correct, Berkman Capital Finance. And then became Flexi Rent. Take us through those early years, so 91, 92, you're in yeah. discussions with Westpac, you're looking at distressed opportunities, you find this company, what, what happened next? Well, um, it had been founded by Dave Berkman and his brother, who were distant cousins. And um, they had a good idea, or the younger guy, David, but they had no economic discipline um, and no management skills and didn't really understand how the accounting methods worked. And so Westpac had just closed the door because Westpac were the sole funder and were going to put the group into not administration, like liquidation, wind up. So they were in a department in Westpac called Loans Management, which I didn't realise at the time, probably fortunately, actually meant in Westpac speak, you're going to die, we just haven't decided which day yet, you know? And uh, so I, I figured out um, the cleverness of the model was that it was focused entirely on operating lease. What that means is that uh, business can simply basically rent. The easiest way to think about it is rent, which is why the business is originally called flexi-rent. So having been the managing partner of my own firm for seven or eight years, um, I remember dreading opening the Daily Mail and saying, your photocopy your lease has expired and you've now got to pay a 30% residual of 5,000 bucks. <laughs> and if you could have continued just to pay the 150 a month or whatever it was, that's what you would do. So I thought from a practical perspective, this is really smart. So you sign up for a let's say, a 36-month commitment. But frequently people would just say, oh, you know what, I'm not ready to change it, I'll just keep renting it. So what would happen, uh, you'd get a commitment for 36 payments, let's say, that would fully uh, repay your principal, plus quite a high implicit rate. And then people would just keep paying. So it's a phenomenon called inertia, and, or that we called inertia. And uh, it was really recognising this reality David Berkman had recognised it, and that was why he was so enthusiastic, but lovely guy, uh, even though we parted company 20 years ago, um, he was almost uh, a savant in the sense that his natural skills for marketing and selling were just incredible. And we're anathema to one another. He, he'd sort of made it, he'd finished school and that was it, you know, never went to uni or whatever, but he had this natural skill, which I recognised. So. When uh, I was going to work with the bank to control the liquidation, so I could get, I knew they were going to fire sale the assets, so I thought, well, I'm going to get those assets. But then David and his younger brother flew to Melbourne a cold July day in 1991 and said, please don't do this. You know, we're going to lose our houses and we think you know how to turn this around. Can we, can we cooperate? And I thought, eh. I, I, I had a good think about it and I said to David, if I take all the chores of daily 
running this catastrophe. If I can get Westpac off our bag, I'm not tipping in a red cent and I'm not tipping in a guarantee. So you need to tell me, David, how much business you can write in, in a certain time frame. And don't overstate it, because if you do, we won't achieve it and you'll lose your house. And don't understate it, because you'll lose your house then too. <laughs> so he was highly motivated. Once I got that information, I then started putting all the spreadsheets together to project. And I went to the Westpac Bank and, and people say there is no thing in, uh, thing in life like luck, and, but luck does play a hand. And for me, there was one individual at the Westpac Bank in loans management in 1991 called Graham Campbell, who was a fantastic man with high intelligence and big nuts. And I put this business plan to him. I said, Graham, if you go ahead with your plan, Westpac's plan, you'll get 50 cents in the dollar and put two people out of their houses. On the other hand, here's my plan. I'll get you 75 cents in the dollar if you back me. And um, in a nutshell, Graham did back me. No one was more surprised than me. I ended up getting Westpac 100 cents in the dollar and he got fired. <laughs> so life's a funny thing. And then you renamed the business to Flexi Rent yeah. in sort of late 91. Yeah. In recognition of, of what we were really doing. Yes. And then the deal with Optus in, in 93, how, how much of a game changer was that for the business? Well, with hindsight, it was, um, it, it was everything because um, Dave, as the sales guy, picked up a call from an American woman I was listening in. And Optus was originally owned by Amalgamated Wireless in the UK and, and, one of, and Bell South. And Bell South knew how to run a telco, so they were really the operational shareholder. And this woman with a Texan accent said to Dave, yeah, I heard, you know, here you guys are pretty good on small ticket leasing. You know, well, I'll spare you the accent. But um, back at the time, Telstra were hugely, or Telecom as it was back then, successful with their analogue mobile network. And Optus's position was that they were going to roll out a digital network, far more efficient and, and wonderful. But the handsets cost a freaking fortune, you know, back then, 20 years ago. Uh, no, 30 years ago. Um, 6,000 bucks for a handset, you know, it's insane money and they just weren't getting any traction. So she wanted us to facilitate a point of sale lease where the payments would be spread over, say, a three-year term. And uh, we said, oh, sure, we can do that. And sort of hung up the phone and said, Cry, what are we going to do? You know, Necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, it sounds ridiculous in this digital age, but using a combination of fax machines and carbonised... Um, pads that would be faxed, you know, it was just so primitive, but it worked. And that was the, the beginning of, um, of our point of sale skills. And uh, uh, David had refused to even look at computers. And he said, oh, they're terrible. You know, they're, they're just a fad kind of approach, which was very indicative of sort of David's approach to life versus mine, you know, whereas I, my view was, and I'd had the advantage of um, learning how to operate them you know, in business school. My view was that they're imperative. Uh, Moore's law was always already coming to pass, that they would get more and more sophisticated, probably not cheaper per se, but cheaper per, um, per relative to the power of the unit. And that was something all businesses were going to have to have. So the Optus deal taught us how to do the process and then we spent, and great credit to David because he was a good salesman, we got in the door with Harvey Norman and we 
became close to a guy called Tony Guattari, who was the founder of the Harvey Norman IT department. Jerry was there, oh, that's all rubbish, that'll, that'll come and go in days, you know. And you go, well, Jerry, let's have a crack. You know, we'll finance them. You can't finance them. You know, I, I've tried to finance the point of No one can make money doing that, mate. You know, you bloody idiot. That's how Jerry speaks. We said, well, how about this, Jerry? We'll pay you to give us the opportunity. And that was how the whole thing started. So I want to ask you about the deal with Harvey Norman in or around about 1995. How did the, the deal come about and to what extent did it really solidify the business's foundations? The answer is a lot. Um, apart from Dave being a good salesman, one of the ways that I turned the business around was creating a franchise structure back in 1992. And I was scale was very important and we didn't have the, uh, the reserves to to build out ourselves. We didn't have any capital. Uh, so I set up a franchise structure, found a bunch of, of clever guys who were really finance brokers and said, here's the opportunity. And so we had a franchise in West Australia, South Australia, uh, Victoria and Queensland. And the Queensland guy actually was an ex-Melbourne guy called Paul Ray. And Paul's the greatest salesman of all time. And his character, which is all about beer, football, meat pies and sheilas, you know, it was very compatible with the culture in the Harvey Norman franchise world. So it was really his relationship building up in Queensland that really opened the door. And um, yes, it did put us on the map because we, we had such a high margin back then in the absence of any competition that we were able to uh, incent, essentially pay Harvey Norman well, they were really commissions, but we called them sales, assistance fees and whatever. And again, to sort of to circle back to what I was talking about before having knowledge, was that I was fascinated by frequent flyer points in terms of their tax status. And there was actually a case that went to the High Court that determined, for the, for the most part, frequent flyer points were tax-free. So I invented a thing that we ended up calling flexi-chips, which was basically each individual salesperson in the Harvey Norman structure around Australia and New Zealand would get these points that you could get to a certain level and um, cash them in, you know, like a, a week's trip in Hawaii with your girlfriend kind of thing. So what we did well was we understood the Harvey Norman culture and it's very competitive. So we constantly were running competitions and uh, it, it was, it, David was very good at this too. So it was one of those, you uh, situations where the, the combination of our skills was greater than the, the, the sum of it, if you get what I mean. And, um, you know, often people say, what did you do right? And I said, I did one thing right, which was to I'd be very cognizant of where people had skills to add. So you have to make a safe space for people who are better than you at certain things to exercise their skills. So yeah, it was a turning point for sure. And then fast forward over, say, the next five or so years, I read that one of the biggest challenges was just convincing the, the banks to give the, the business yeah. wholesale capital. Yeah. How did you go about navigating, say, that late 90s period where there were episodes of, of turbulence? It was very, very frustrating um, and gave me plenty of sleepless nights. But again, it turns back to human relationships. And um, we had a connection with Society Generale who had given a couple of local Sydney blokes the brief to grow their leasing. So we did a deal with them where, what was called a principal agency agreement, where we would originate the business for them. 
So these guys couldn't have been happier. They didn't have to get out of bed. But, I mean, it, I can make it sound simple. It was actually took years to get it right, you know. But without those guys at SockGen, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. Um, and they saw us through. We had other finance accesses as well, but the banks were just brain dead. And uh, I understood securitisation, which very few people did back then. And I could see that that was where we were going to go. But I'd walk in to talk to, to players in the game and they'd, the, the average bank manager would say, well, what's that? No idea. The really smart, well-educated ones would say, oh, isn't that something you do with home mortgages? And go, yes, you do, but it can be any receivable, including lease receivables, you know? Anyway, I didn't realise, again, as I said earlier, if you knew how hard things were going to be, you wouldn't take them on. So I just kept hitting my head against the brick wall and uh, until finally, um, when I bought Dave out in 2002-03, um, I used Colonial First State Private Equity to help me, and they were actually owned by the Combank. So I said, guys, we need some serious warehouse funding here. So Combank said, oh, do we own that? Do we? Okay, we better give you some money. And of course, once they were in, everybody else piled in. You know, that's the Australian banking way. I want to ask you about that buyout of, uh, of David's share of the business. What, was that a case of you, you both had sort of different strategic overlays of where you wanted to take the business? What had happened was that the business had become much bigger and much more complex. And Dave, bless his cotton socks, didn't really understand the difference between proprietorship and management. So he sort of figured that because he owned half the business, um, he could give his, um, you know, the, the bloke that was um, on the foredeck of his boat a, a job because he was a good bloke. And when we were small and you could manage these things, it was okay. But he actually became um, quite a problem for the, because of this. And no hard feelings, but also the business had become way more sophisticated so that this, the skill set he had when we were much smaller in building was becoming less and less relevant. And um, plus, he's the sort of guy that he just wanted to build himself a beautiful big wooden boat, buy a place on the harbour and sit back and smoke cigars, you know? So he, the amount of money I bought him out for was more than he'd ever dreamed of. And uh, it was an arduous, difficult process, but we got there. So, um, but I didn't want to take all the risk myself and I realised that private equity would not only bring capital to the table but also uh, expertise because I could see we were going into the new level. Uh, I guess you could say at that point I knew enough to know how much I didn't know. <laughs> and uh, so it turned out the, the private equity guys added a huge amount of value. Then by 2003, you'd already been CEO for more than a decade of the business. So tell us about your decision to, to step down from that role. Well, remember I said it was becoming big and complex and, and what I found was that I was not enjoying my role anywhere near as much as I had in the past and I didn't think I was all that good at it. I found that the bigger and more complex the business became, um, I, I felt like I was slipping up and things were getting under my guard and so on and so forth. So it was almost a case of um, writing myself three warning letters and then uh, it, being unable to comply, I had to fire myself, you know. And it was really quite an easy decision. And um, for me, having said that, I knew that finding someone to replace myself would be one of the most important decisions I'd ever made. So I built a structure of four or five people whom I respected and whom I knew, A, understood my character, and B, wouldn't hesitate to tell me what they really thought. And, uh, you know, my strategy as a, as a manager was always, if you tell me what you think I want to hear, you're fired. If you tell me we have a problem, 
I will reward you. If you tell me we have a problem and you know what to do about it, I'll double reward you. And it's one of the, the traps of leadership is people will tell you what they think you want to hear. So these are all people who would speak very openly with me. And they were my uh, check and balance system when I was going through. A huge number of very competent people actually that applied for the job. I, uh, I was very chuffed at the time and, and surprised. And uh, so when I, we finally made a decision in Touchwood, it turned out to be a brilliant decision. The guy was fantastic and uh, had all the skill sets that I felt I didn't have. And uh, it freed me up to sort of be more innovative and um, do what I do well, which is sort of imagine things and try and see if they're viable or not, you know. Just on your, your approach to leadership there, where, where was that informed by? Was that harking back to your days at business school where you learned that, you know, some of those leadership traits or? Yeah. Look, sometimes it's sort of 50% learned and 50% intuitive. And, um, you know, the first alarm signals were my sense of um, not doing such a good job, not enjoying going to work so much. And certainly business school, there was a particular crazy Czechoslovakian professor who talked about fair weather and foul weather management, which I, at the time, regarded as fairly uh, irrelevant to, to life, but he was so spot on. And in all contexts, um, individuals can be really effective or really ineffective, depending on the context, depending on the stage of development. And this applies as much as anything to parenting. You know, you can be a brilliant parent of little people, but when they become big people, you're not so good, or vice versa. And businesses are the same. And good leadership will be forensically aware of their own strengths and weaknesses, and will be prepared to step aside or delegate when they recognise weaknesses. By 2006, the business had solidified its credentials and was floated on the ASX around about the $2 per share mark. What did the liquidity event mean for you, not, not just financially, but in terms of seeing this business that you'd built up over two decades really list on the, on the stock exchange and, and become a serious player? Yeah, it's really weird, you know, I never really had a moment of elation. Um, and I was, I was pleased, I, I was, it was a very, you know, significant achievement. And so for the first time I had serious money, which again was a matter for me of choice. So that so many different things I could do. Um, but to suggest I might've had a period of relevant, uh, what do you call it? Uh, relevance deprivation syndrome, yep. <laughs> so I was invited onto all sorts of board and philanthropic boards and God knows what. And I said, yes, 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 you know, then found myself doing so much. I, I wasn't doing anything, it was just crazy. But that's sort of a learning experience you've got to go through. Um, but uh, yeah, John was such a good chief executive, I really didn't have to do much. And I'd invited Margaret Jackson to take the chairmanship. I knew her socially and she said yes. So having sort of stepped straight from Qantas into my little company, it was like, oh, that's not so bad, you know. So it was in good hands and um, we had a boom period. Um, I should have bought the company back in the global financial crisis, it went, um, we floated at two bucks a share, it got up to about 350. And then by March of 09, it was 22 cents a share. And I should have just bought the whole thing back with hindsight, but I didn't. Anyway, um, so then John got it back up to nearly five bucks a share with a market cap of about one and a half billion. Uh, and then after, no, John was with me, I think nine years. And he, wanted, he was an American guy and he wanted to go back to the States. And that was the beginning of the end.
we then made uh, several catastrophic decisions in terms of leadership and I could write a book on it. But it was downhill all the way. And now's the first period since then, in 10 years, that I can see that the vision's re-clarified, we've got the right leadership, it's all, all good, you know? Just to close out this chapter, when you look back on the Hum Group, as it's called now, slash Flexi Group story, and it's a remarkable business story, whichever way you look at it, what were the what were the key learnings for you along the way, either sort of highlights that you'd had or challenges that you'd had that you'd learned from? Oh, how long have you got? You know, <laughs> um, I've got to write the book. Look, you make mistakes every day. And, and often if you do things, you make a decision today, that has a consequence in 12 months, but you don't necessarily think, oh yeah, that was a good call. You know, you don't necessarily join the dots in that way in your own mind, but on the other hand, mistakes are very clearly uh, thrown back at you. So, oh gosh, so many things you do differently. Yeah, look, probably the, there's two or three things that stand out in, in my commercial experience. One is finding the right people and delegating properly, and the other, nightmare for me has always been IT because everything else in that business almost to this day I can do but I can't write code and I have to take the word from others that this is okay or that's okay. I mean what we were talking about before the hacking. So we've got a group of people who've got impressive looking CVs but I don't know whether we're hack proof you know and and I can't go in there and check because I don't know what to look for. So that really frustrates me but it it's really the same comment because if you get your people right, then that problem is solved. It's just it's a bit of a catch twenty two with IT. How do you know you've got your people right? You know. I thought we'd close out our discussion with a few more general topics. The Abercrombie Group. Where do you see the opportunity long term to invest? Well, obviously, life's full of risk reward scenarios, and uh, I'm pretty conservative. Um, I think risk is for people who like to go to casinos. Risk is actually a product of how much you know. And so I'm pretty conservative. Um, the, the biggest single asset we have apart from the public company shares is, is real estate. And I, I have a particular formula for identifying real estate, which is all about location, yield, tax effectiveness in, in other contexts. Um, so that's, that's the principal focus. But I have an open mind. I mean, uh, I'm trying to involve my two sons in, in more and more to come up with thoughts and ideas. And, um, and if they say, Dad, I think we should invest in this or that, I say, well, show me the business case and okay, we'll have a crack, you know? So it gets them thinking, that's the most important thing. And what do you look for if you are analysing some of those business cases for, for companies? Well, you look for um, a model that makes sense. Um, but once, once, you, once you see that, I mean, we talked about Afterpay earlier, and it's probably a good example, because does the model make sense? Absolutely, but what about execution? And the reason I said it would never make money is that it was very clear to me that for it to succeed, it needed to do massive volumes of very small loans. And one of the biggest challenges when you're lending money is to assess the credibility of the, of the person or party to whom you're lending the money. That is difficult to do and to do well. And if we don't get it right within two decimal points, you go broke. So my thinking was that it would be impossible for Afterpay to uh, accurately assess the creditworthiness of, of their plethora. You know, a million 18-year-old girls buying a new blouse for, for $100, you know, you're not going to get it right. And so you're going to lose a lot of money. 
And what's worse is that because the transaction sizes are so small and the losses are so frequent, that it is impossible, not difficult, impossible to chase the debts down. And once the word gets out that you can get away with this once or twice, it's going to amplify, and that's exactly what happened. And because the market was so obsessed with, with the growth story, uh, the market seemed to think this was like, it was exactly the same as the dot-com boom. But here's the difference. The dot-com boom involved the internet, which absolutely had the promise of delivering massive, massive profits. We just didn't really know how or where those profits would manifest, what business model would work best. But with buy now, pay later, we've been doing interest-free instalments for 20 years, for God's sake. And we would never do it below $500 for a whole lot of reasons that Zip and Afterpay and OpenPay and PayRight and a whole bunch of others have figured out now as they, as they die. So um, that's, that's really what's going on. So I use that example because clearly it was, if you invested in Afterpay at the right time, you could have made a hundredfold um, of your investment. But you had to get in and out at the right time. Um, and uh, as I said, they'd be broke today if it weren't for the block purchase. So there's a business model that on the face of it was stunning. But when you drill down and depending on your window of opportunity, uh, I would say is a failure. And all the other companies I mentioned, which are either dead or dying, have cost investors billions and billions of dollars around the world, but especially Australia. So we couldn't be happier, even though it was a misery period for us. Those billions have been lost to investors, but they've actually been spent. And how they've been spent primarily is marketing. So those billions have been spent educating merchant channels, providers of goods and services, of the extent to which uh, an interest-free buy now, pay later can uh, enhance their sales volumes and, and values. And it's taught a whole new breed of consumers that this is a really nice product. So we can now sit up there and simply cherry pick the consumers that we want to have on our books and the merchants who, who understand how the model works and will pay us accordingly. We don't have to educate them because thanks to all the other guys, they now understand how the model works. Let's talk about a few of your hobbies. As I understand, you're a qualified ski instructor and a qualified pilot. What, what drives your passion for those? Well, I'm a ski instructor. I never quite finished my pilot's license, but I did, I did enjoy flying. Um, oh, look, it's just, you know, why does anybody like a sport? And um, I was frustrated as a kid. Um, the, the family were not particularly well off, you know, and I, I very rarely had a ski lesson. I just sort of figured it out by osmosis. Back in the day when, you know, if you had two weekends of winter, you were having a good time. And... Um, a lot of things had changed in skiing, um, particularly the technology of the ski itself. And I was frustrated that I didn't, um, I really wasn't, at a certain time, in a certain way, I'd been a pretty good skier, but I felt that I wasn't anymore. And that was probably the driving thing. I was just, um, it was my own aspiration of satisfaction. And I thought I could, I can now afford lessons all day long. But I figured that the best way to learn was to actually do an instructor's course, because uh, it's, the whole dynamic of the teaching changes. If I'm teaching you, Rob, I'm going to say, oh, look, Rob, that was a great turn you did just then, but look, you want to try doing this or that? And yeah, okay. Whereas as an instructor, when I'm being taught how to teach, it's 
Andrew, that term was bullshit. You don't understand this particular point. Which bit don't you get? You know, you're not doing this. Here's the technicality. Da, 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 da. And it was the best thing I ever did. It was hard yards. It was hard yards. But um, it, it really got me to where I wanted to be. So it was great. And I enjoyed teaching. I really enjoyed it. So you've been incredibly successful right throughout your career in, in all of the endeavours that you've pursued. What are the keys to success? Um, credibility, relationship building, um, and creativity. And there's subsets of all those things. Um, but in, in a nutshell, it's sort of no idea is a bad idea until, it, until it's analysed. Um, and have a good sense of um, if you're providing goods and services, which is the essence of most businesses, you have a very clear understanding of who is your customer. That might sound like a you know, gratuitous nonsense, but it took me a year or two to figure out, once we really developed the point of sale model with Harvey's, that we had two customers. One was our distribution channel, i.e the provider of goods and services, the retailer, and the other was the end user. And we would be, we'd bring them together. Um, and we had to have a different approach. They both needed completely different types of attention and they needed different offerings, so to speak. Um, but I also learned that, that finance, one of the reasons it appeals to me is it can often be the glue where you bring parties together. I mean, I'll give you an example one of the projects we're working on is what are called virtual power plants where basically you bring together whole areas of solar, residential solar users, or it can be commercial but call it residential, and we bring together um, the installers of the solar systems, the manufacturer of the, uh, of the panels, for example Life LG, manufacturer of the batteries, for example Tesla, um, a, a electricity retailer, Diamond Energy, and, and some other parties, but they will not work together naturally, but they'll work together with us because we bring the team together. We say, here's what we're going to do. This is your task, your task, your task. And everything is done by one payment from the end user. So we, we're the glue. So each of these guys get a feed out of doing this deal together. But as the financier, we're, we're the central point. We're the cook in the kitchen, you know? So, um, and there again, each of these um, cooperative partners need slightly different attention. Um, so, you know, having an acute awareness of that really matters and complacency in business is death. You touched on it there, but, but what have been the biggest lessons that you've learned throughout your career? Oh, look, I think probably the biggest is sort of choosing the right people, building relationships and um, you know, perhaps being, uh, it's really hard, as I said, risk is all about knowledge and I was risk adverse in terms of taking the business offshore. I mean, as of today, we're in New Zealand, Ireland, UK and Canada as well as Australia, but I had the opportunity to take the business to the United States when no one else was doing it, literally in the 90s. And I talked to my, uh, my wife and said, what do you think, you know? We're doing pretty well as things stand, but this could be, you know, a multi-billion dollar thing. Now, with the wisdom of hindsight, I was right, it could have been and would have been. So you sort of you have a few regrets. Well, I should have done that, you know. But um, yeah, look, the, the key to the whole thing is if you are the ultimate entrepreneurial leader, you don't have to do much more than think. And you, you, you 
pick the right people to actually execute. That's the biggest lesson. Having said that, in the early days, I simply didn't have the money. We just couldn't afford to hire good people. And it wasn't until about 98 that, that we had enough revenue to do that. And then I started rolling it out and, and four years later I fired myself. So it all worked well. How important are people to a company's success? 100%. There's nothing marginal about it. It's 100%. So that means that the way that, that leadership work with those people and structure their work environment and understand their aspirations and figure out appropriate remuneration structures and incentive structures. Uh, you know, one of the realities of life, people think, you know, the old saying, you dig the ditch to earn the money to buy the bread to get the energy, dig the ditch. And a lot of people do that, which is tragic. But in reality, once you get, I think, to a, well, not even scale, you don't have to be have a big company to understand that most people, for most people, the amount they're paid is about a third or fourth, sometimes even a fifth level of priority. It's are they happy coming to work? Are they enjoying themselves? Are they challenged? Are they satisfied? Are they achieving? You know, there's a way more, for most human beings, that's, that's a truism. Oh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Stuff, yeah. Final question, when you reflect on your career, your business career and your life, what have been your proudest achievements? And then the second part of that is, what, what do you still want to achieve? Well, um, well, I suppose the thing one must always be most proud of is one's children, you know. Um, parenting's pretty difficult, or can be. But, um, oh look, I'm obviously, the business has been fun, although the last 10 years have been misery. Um, but we're back on track. And um, I absolutely aspire to um, enhancing the value of the current public company by orders of magnitude. And I think I, think I know how to do it. And so that's, I've actually been spending more time on the public company in the last 12 months than I have for years. And, uh, but in a, in a productive way. And um, look, uh, philanthropy is important. You know, I, I've been on a bunch of boards um, that I've enjoyed, but don't want to stick around for years and years and years. Like I, that, the Flory Neurosciences Board was fascinating. Um, I was on the management, what's it what's called, the Resort Management Board for Mount Bull and Mount Stirling uh, when I was living up there skiing. Um, I'm still on the Menzies Research Centre, which is, if you like, a think tank for the, the right side of government. Um, and they're all enjoyable because of the intellectual simulation, your attempting achievement. Um, but philanthropy, my, uh, I mean, one of the questions you mentioned earlier was, um, what's my focus on philanthropy? And my, it took me ages to figure this out, but it sounds pretty simple when you, when you articulate it, which is that the charities all over the place are helping homeless people. I'm way more interested in how to avoid having homeless people. And so my focus over a period of years has got more and more in, involved in, in education. And I became the um, chairman of the La Trobe University, what's called campaign cabinet, and that's not gone very well. But then I thought, you know, I think it's more important to help people get to university. So I sort of started drilling down and where I've sort of settled, which is now my principal, if you like, philanthropic beneficiaries, the Smith family, because they cater, they, they enhance the educational opportunities for very young kids. And it's, um, it's very satisfying because, you know, you're more or less anonymous. 
but these kids get uh, kids from very underprivileged families who can't get a new pair of shoes, can't afford the new computer, can't afford to go on the school vac um, tour, whatever. Um, and it's amazing how a relatively small amount of money goes such a long way to enhance the quality of life for these kids and their educational opportunities. So I think I've got uh, you know 150 kids or something now, and uh, I want to keep growing that because I think it's the best, you know, one of the most um, satisfying moments I had. I was asked to speak to a bunch of these kids in a very um, demographically underprivileged area down uh, Geelong Way. And I walked in and said, okay, who wants to go to university? One kid put their hand up. And after an hour of rousing and playing games with them and helping them uh, dream about things they could do with their lives, and I asked the question again, and they put their hand up, you know. So it was very satisfying. And uh, I'm trying to do that more regularly because uh, it's all, you know, writing checks is one thing, but to give your time and your, your part of your personality to the kids is, is something else again. Fantastic note to end on. Remarkable career, Andrew Abercrombie. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Rob.